Our scripture reading for today is from Psalms 137, verses 1 through 9. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps, for there our captors demanded of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing of us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's songs in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy, remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it to its very foundations. O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one. How blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little one against the rock. Amen. Not a lot of amens of that one. <laughs> Welcome to Mosaic. What an inspiring, encouraging passage to reflect on. I think I'll just say amen. We can all go home now, right? What in the world is this passage doing in the Bible? The Bible, especially after that whole unshakable bit with the tree and the music and, you know, all that. What's going on? Well, what's going on is that this month we're looking at the unshakable life of a man who lived in very shakable times. He's a man by the name of Nehemiah. He's one of the great leaders in the Bible, and he, he did something extraordinary in his day. He actually helped rebuild his broken nation, but to understand the odds that he was up against and to see what he did and how he did it, and maybe, just maybe to see how we can do the same, I want to make this morning a lateral move over to a passage, that passage we just read, to show you what's going on in his background, in the world of his day. Uh, and so as we look at this song, this is, this is really, it's an old Jewish song, this psalm, Psalm 137, as we hold up this snapshot, sort of Polaroid, of a moment in time, even from Nehemiah's past, what do we see? What do we need to see? What's this pressing us to see? It's pressing us to see three things this morning. That number one, we're not nearly angry enough. Number two, we're not nearly spiritual enough. And number three, that our God is not nearly big enough. So here we go. Let's look at Psalm 137, uh, number one here. We'll begin in, in, in verse one of the psalm. It says, by the rivers of Babylon... There we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. So where are we? Well, here in Nehemiah, and this psalm too, we're in the period of Jewish history called the exile. And what had happened was that the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, though they had sworn to be God's nation, though they had sworn to be his people, though they had sworn to be his light to the world, and though they had never quit calling themselves God's special people, they actually forgot what it meant and what it took to be God's special people. And they turned their back on God and his, his covenant on their own promise. And though God had sent them covenant watcher after covenant watcher, those prophets for centuries, to warn them, to turn them back to him, they ignored all God's warnings and actions toward him. And so finally, God had to act, and he allowed the Babylonian Empire in 586 BC to come in and destroy the city of Jerusalem. The Babylonians tore down the Jewish temple and carried off into exile most of the people of the city. 
And it was a bad time. But after that, the Persian Empire came in and they conquered the Babylonians. And the, the Persians looked up about 70 years later and said, we've got these inherited Jews in our midst. And they began to allow a good number of them to return to Israel to try to rebuild the city and the, and the temple. But it was terrible. The rebuilding program failed and stalled. And it was awful. And so last week, though, we saw what God began to do about it. He began to raise up this man by the name of Nehemiah to go and rebuild the nation. And Nehemiah was an amazing person. He was a Jew, but he didn't grow up in Israel. He actually grew up in Babylon in the kingdom of Persia, where there in Babylon, Nehemiah had his life all right. He had it made. He was at the top of the culture, had a perch in the palace. And if you were here, though, last week you saw what happened to him and where sort of his story began. And what happened to him last week was a conversation that Nehemiah had in the palace with his own brother. His brother had gone to Jerusalem, seen the devastation, came back, reported it to Nehemiah. And when his brother told him, The scope of the devastation in Jerusalem, do you remember, if you were here, what Nehemiah did? What did he do next? We're going to recap it briefly because it's unbelievable. Nehemiah said over in Nehemiah 1, verse 2, he said, When I heard these things, I what? I sat down and wept. All right, what's happening here? You say, well, Morgan... The man's having a bit of a breakdown. He's crying. No, there's actually far more than that. Because did you notice what words, specific words he said? Because his words are the exact words of Psalm 137, one, the exact same song lyrics of a psalm written during his childhood and sung by him as a young man growing up. What's he doing there? Oh, he's quoting the song. He's quoting the lyrics from Psalm 137 because these are the only two places in the Bible this phrase is used. I sat down and wept. Let me ask you, had Nehemiah ever been to Israel before? No. Had he personally seen what had happened there? No. Had what happened to them happened to him? No. Then what's happening? Well, what's happening is in that a moment, the words of this psalm, this song from his childhood and from his past, are rushing back into his brain, into his memory, as his brother gives him that report. See, and anyone who would have read his story would have known exactly what he was referencing there in his own story. See, the song he'd sung as a child is coming back to him and hitting him with his full emotional force by the rivers of Babylon. His parents and grandparents sat down and wept. And now in a palace in Babylon, he sat down and wept. He's letting you, the reader, know that for the first time he's entering into solidarity with his own people and making their story his story. And this, by the way, this is where empathy for other people groups begin, right? For another people begins, right? By making someone else's story your own story and entering into it. And can we do this, by the way? I hope we could do this. Can we as people, though some of us live far from pain in our day-to-day lives, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, of course, but can we enter into the story of another people who really are our people? 
But let's keep going here. Because the pain of this moment didn't leave him because we see literally in the next episode of his TV story life, Nehemiah goes and he enters the presence of the king, King Artaxerxes, and he's about to ask the king for money and resources to go build the nation of Israel. And as he's doing this in a blink-and-you-miss-it detail, Nehemiah tells you it was four months later he entered the king's presence to make his request. Which means that for four months, this psalm has been filling his heart, ringing around in his head. Four months later, he's still feeling the devastating effects of this psalm in the news. And when he goes before the king, he can't hide all that he's been processing. The king, it says, notices his emotional state, and he asks Nehemiah, this is the literal Hebrew here, what is, Nehemiah, what is... That evil on your face. What's the evil on your face? There's an evil that you're carrying, that you're experiencing. What's going on with you, Nehemiah? Oh, what's going on is that Nehemiah was entering into and living out Psalm 137, which showed him this. Psalm 137 showed him he wasn't nearly angry enough about what was going on. He wasn't nearly angry enough about the state of the world. He wasn't nearly angry enough about the state of his people, another people, and the state of his nation. His comfortable life in the palace had dulled his senses. He said, well, maybe he didn't really know what was going on. No, no, no. They've been rebuilding, trying to, for 20 years You think a man in his position didn't know that? I think he did. I think that what happened to Nehemiah is something that can happen to all of us at some point if we're not careful. We can get comfortable in our lives, in our careers, in our position, all the things we've worked so hard to achieve, and then we can move and turn and screen out, block out all the bad news, all the uncomfortable reality about the way things are and how the people over there are doing. And therefore, I think we need what happened to Nehemiah to happen to us. We need the power of God's word to strike our hearts this morning like it struck his. And when the power of Psalm 137 hit him, it changed him. The psalm showed him he wasn't nearly angry enough. So let's back up and ask, What's the angry stuff in the psalm? What had him so emotionally captivated? What does Psalm 137 show? Well, it shows us, actually, two tragic moments. Images preserved for us. The first is in verse 7. The psalmist writes, Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down. To its foundation. So, according to the eyewitness account here, the neighboring nation of Edom had cheered for and gloated over the destruction of the rival nation in the city of Jerusalem. And second, though, most horribly, the last verse we read, you read it, it was something that was tragically common in that day when ancient empires conquered smaller lands, take the babies, rip the babies, seize the babies out of the parents' arms and dash their heads against the rocks. 
And what set the whole psalm into motion and what got the writer of the psalm conjuring up these images and being so worked up was a cruel request by the Babylonians. The Babylonian captors came to them and said, came to this psalmist at least and said, hey, you Jews, hey, you people, didn't you say something at some point about your God being really big? About you being God's special people. Hey, didn't you say something about God being really powerful, that Yahweh God? Why don't you sing me one of your really powerful songs about your powerful God? You know that one, how does it go? Oh, how great is our God. Hey, sing us one of those songs. Go ahead and dial it up for us. We're listening. And the psalmist said, when our captors taunted us, when they demanded songs of us like that, tried to force us to sing for their own amusement, We hung up our harps in protest. We put away our guitars. We stood up from the piano and we said to them, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? And that's what's got the psalmist so angry and Nehemiah also along with him. All right. What does all of this teach us so far? What do we learn, class? Here we go. What does Psalm 137 show us? Two things. And first, what we've seen so far, Psalm 137 shows us actually the emotional authenticity of the Bible. Emotional authenticity of the Bible. And we need to see this because what's so fascinating about our modern culture today is that we tend to pride ourselves on being these transparent, go jump over a sofa somewhere, uh, go on a TV talk show and get it all out. Everybody back up because here comes my big social media blast, right? We pride ourselves on keeping it real. Vulnerability, tell it like it isness. But then we come to this and we act shocked. We're thinking, yo, they're like a primitive culture, getting so angry. Yeah, they were always violent back then. Well, wait, hang on a second. Whatever happened to keeping it real? Whatever happened to, you know, vulnerability and valuing that? Here's what's going on. Listen, the Bible got vulnerable way before we ever did. Way before we ever did. I mean, do you realize this is the inspired and forever word of God for you? You say, well, it may be inspired, but it's not very inspiring, Morgan. Well, that's not actually the point of the Bible at all times. And that's not the point of being part of God's people. Part of what it means to be part of the people of God is that we enter into his story and the story of his people and we embrace an emotional authenticity that at times can make us uncomfortable. See, the Bible, it is an inspiring story ultimately because, by the way, you know, spoiler alert, I've read the end of the book. I've seen the end. Maybe you've seen the end of the movie too. We actually win in the end. God wins. That's how the whole thing ends. And win. yeah, we win. It's actually super inspiring, the ultimate overthrow of the galactic, you know, evil empire. It's inspiring ultimately, but the Bible's not inspiring primarily. See, not inspiring primarily at points. That's first. It shows us the emotional authenticity of the Bible. But second, even more importantly, the psalm shows us the redemptive power of righteous anger. Huh. See, we tend to dismiss our feelings, our anger, just overlook it instead of channeling it into something far more constructive. And so let's just ask, well, well, what is, what's anger after? All right, let's define the term. Anger is the emotional means we use to recover what we've lost. I mean, this is expressed in countless ways because, you know, this, you, you get, you know, angry when someone tells a lie about you, right? Because in that moment, your reputation 
is being lost. So you get angry when you're overcharged on the dinner bill, right? That $1.50 cup of coffee is going to break you, but you're mad about it. Why? Because your money is being lost or taken. Or you're angry when someone you know, says something unkind or lies. Why? Because again, now trust is being lost. And you get angry when your kids get out of bed again and again and again. Because for the love, can't they stay in bed one night and let me get some time? My spouse, amen, amens all around. Why? Because your time or your schedule or your hopes for the evening are lost. But the Bible never condemns anger in and of itself. I mean, look how often God is angry at the way his kids treat each other, right? How often people hurt each other. Or more specifically, look at the way Jesus did his ministry. I mean, he flipped over tables. Why? Because he was angry with the religious system that impoverished people. In another place, it says actually uh, he was filled, this is the Hebrew, filled with fury and he healed a man's hand. Why? He was angry at the state of the world, at the state of that man's DNA for how it, it came to pass in his life. And then in John 11, when Jesus stood before the tomb of his friend, Lazarus, the Bible says that he snorted with anger. He was so angry with what had happened to his friend and the way of the world. Jesus Christ could not control his emotional and physical reaction. And by the way, if you say, well, I kind of like that, I'm going to start flipping some tables on people because I'm kind of mad at them. Let me tell you, just make sure you're also healing hands and also moving to raise people from the dead as well. All right. The point is, though, Jesus's anger was healing for people. He did ministry from a place of anger at times. And let me ask you, do you know now why I pastor? What do you think? Well, here it comes. Listen, I pastor and lead and teach because many times I'm angry. I'm angry. I'm angry, for example. I'm angry at the ways that race divides our nation. I'm angry about it. I love our history of our, as a nation. love so much about it. But I'm angry at some of our stuff we did in our past. I mean, why we have to do all that? I'm angry that people, including me, suck many times. Right? And how we treat each other. I'm angry that people drop their friends on a dime because they think they can get something better somewhere else. I'm angry I'm not a better dad. I'm angry I'm not a better husband. I'm angry at the way we don't listen to each other. We process everything through some kind of filter and we're always suspicious and we're always critiquing. I'm angry at the way we point to stuff outside ourselves as a problem instead of owning our own stuff on the inside. I'm angry at the way that homeless people in our own city People made in God's image are invisible to the world. I'm angry at the way parents sometimes abuse their children. I'm angry that people get divorced or spouses cheat on one another. I'm angry that people, especially women, are abused or taken advantage of. And it seems like people get away with it. I'm angry that businesses cheat their employees or their customers. And most of all, I'm angry that people don't know Jesus and they think that his love is bondage instead of being the most freeing thing in the world. I think we're not nearly angry enough with the way the world is. Nehemiah, Nehemiah wasn't angry enough either. But Psalm 137 helped him get there. May it be the same for us. That's number one. Number two, though, I 
think also at the same time, though, the psalm shows us we're not nearly spiritual enough. Not only spiritual enough. Let me show you what I mean. Some of you actually liked that last point. I felt that, and you should. It's pretty modern, right? That's pretty, but it's also biblical. But what you may not like is what's coming next. So just warning you, because while the Bible never condemns anger in and of itself, it actually does warn us about it and shows us how to direct it in an unbelievably challenging way. How? It's like this. Psalm 137 shows us the difficult and challenging truth that before we act our anger, we should, we must pray our anger. You say, well, where's that? Right here between verses 6 and 7 because all all through this psalm, the writer, man, he's angry, he's venting, he's speaking to anybody who'll listen to him in any kind of all his social media platform and he's got it. Wow. That was quick. Thank you. That brother, he's angry. He had to slow down on that bike. Being here today. All right. The psalmist, man, he's, he's blowing up his feed. Man, anybody who will hear him, the captors, his friends, himself, he starts talking to Jerusalem like it's a real person, like it's a, it's a living thing. He's like crazy. He's talking to everybody, but then something happens to him. He begins to talk to God. Look at verse 7. It says, remember who? Lord. Remember God. What the Edomites did. He's praying, see. Remember what they did on the day the city fell. You say, well, that's nice. He's praying. No, no, no. There's actually more than that going on here. Because if you know, you may may know that to remember in the Hebrew is actually a far more active thing and just passively bringing something back to the old memory. No, to ask God to remember in Hebrew is to ask God to act. Oh, look at this. When God remembered Noah in the ark in Genesis 8, he sent a wind wind so they could exit their floating prison. In Genesis 30, when God remembered Rachel, he enabled her to conceive. When God remembered his covenant with Abraham, he freed his people from slavery in Egypt. When God remembers, he's literally doing just that. He's remembering, reattaching, sewing up a place in the world that had been broken. When he remembered Noah, he relaunched the human race. When he restored, when he remembered Rachel, he restored her body when he remembered Abraham and his covenant. He redeemed Israel in the Passover. See, to ask God to remember, the psalmist knows, is to ask God to act. So what, therefore, is the psalmist asking God to fix? What's he asking him to mend? Oh, here it is. The psalmist is asking God for justice. He's asking God for justice. They did this to us, God. Don't turn a blind eye, God. Remember what they did. Act into what they did. Remember, they gloated, they cheered. As our city was burned, as our families were torn apart, as our babies' brains were bashed in, God, don't just not forget. God, act. God, act. And in saying this, the psalmist shows us again, we're not nearly angry enough about the injustices in the world, but But by praying, he's also challenging us and showing us that anger must have a limit. Because he's recognizing he's on a dangerous path. And if he does not, in this moment, place his anger into the heart of God, he could go over the edge and just perpetuate the cycle himself. And yeah, he does, man, he says some pretty blunt stuff in here. He asks some pretty hard stuff. But who's he asking it of in the end? Who? It's 
God, right? He asks it of God. And therefore he doesn't say what you see other folks in the Bible say at times you get mad and want to, you know, have a vendetta. You read it other times people say, oh God, the sun will not set till I get my revenge or I swear on the lives of my children. I'll get back at them today before the sun goes down. No, he doesn't swear revenge. He doesn't threaten violence. He prays his anger. He sings his anger. He writes his anger. And let me tell you why this is so important. It's important because when someone acts into your life in a way that you experience as a hurt, and I use that phrase on purpose because not everything you experience as a hurt is something that person actually meant to do to you. And you know this is true because not everything you do that someone else experiences as a hurt is how you meant that action to come across. See, so whenever someone acts into your life in a way that you experience as hurt, and this is all of us, it's just the only question is to what degree. The question is, what are you going to do with it? I mean, you can't do nothing with it. You've got to do something. The pain, the hurt, the suffering, they come into your body against your will, into your life against your will. It's like a toxin in your spiritual bloodstream. What are you going to do with it in the end? When Carrie and I, when we first started in ministry many years ago, we worked for someone who, from our perspective, hurt us pretty bad and pretty regularly. He he spoke ill of us and all that stuff. And there was, to quote the Princess Bride, there were humiliations galore. Isn't that a great phrase? Great phrase. Now, I didn't choose any of that, but God did something great through us because of it, because at some point I found out that complaining about the hurt didn't actually solve anything. Just venting to people didn't actually solve anything. And at my lowest point, do you know what saved our souls? What saved our souls in the end was grabbing one another's hands and praying our anger. We prayed our anger. We prayed for that person. We prayed God's blessing over his life and ministry uh, and kids and house and home and wealth and effect and anointing and all that stuff. I think we probably prayed for his dog if he had one or his cat and his guinea pig or whatever he had. We made sure to pray for it over and over again until I got sick of having anger prayer like those Israelites got sick of the manna, right? It's breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Same thing every day. But do you know what that kept us Particularly me from being. Oh, it kept me from being a victim. A victim. Because I, I knew I was supposed to pray and forgive him. And for a while, though, I refused. And do you know what that, excuse me, in the end, though, what was really eating me up? In the end, was it, what was eating me up wasn't really the anger. And it's not your anger, if you got it, that's eating you up today. You say, oh, yes, it is. I'm pretty angry about stuff. My anger is eating me up. No, 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 no. It's not actually the unrighteous anger that eats you up. It wasn't my unrighteous anger that was eating me up. What eats us up isn't the unrighteous anger, but it's the refusal to pray the anger. It's the refusal to pray the anger. Because, listen, you know this, every morning, right, you, li- you relive the conversation, you rehash the moment, you go through the pain, and if you do that, like I did, you live in a tiny box with the label victim on it. It's got a label on it. And what I learned is that when I see the world through the lens of being a victim, that necessarily triggers a whole set of beliefs and actions with the end destination of ultimately seeing myself as a good person and them as a bad person. And when that happens, you can justify any wrong you do. 
because they deserved it. Well, I lived like a victim. I could do no wrong. I could think no wrong. Woo, that person could do no right. I was like a caricature artist, you know, exaggerated his features, ears, nose, chin, all made him look real bad. That's what, that's what victim mentality does. Well, I justified everything I did, my poor behavior, because he hurt me and he had it coming. And if you're doing that today, you feel that way towards someone in a way that's kind of okay. But listen, you don't, I've got good news. You don't have to stay there. You've got the power to change that if you want to get free. And when, probably at the urging of my wife, because she's of sounder mind and body than I am, we began to pray our anger changed us. And the psalmist, therefore, at the same time, he presses us to be angrier than we are. He presses us to be far more prayerful than we are. And I think Nehemiah picked up on all of this because probably the most notable feature about the whole book is how much our man prays through the whole thing at every point, before every meeting, after the meeting, when someone says something about him, before he gets up, goes to bed, he's always always praying. Why? You say, well, he's just being godly. No, I think it's because he was desperate. I think he was desperate not to get bitter. I think he was desperate not to get angry at all the stuff that had been broken in his nation. Desperate not to cave and let the weight of human depravity crush his soul. I think he was desperate. And so he prayed. Are you angry enough today? If you're not, you should consider Psalm 137 and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Are you free, though, from unrighteous anger and from bitterness? And if you're not, you should consider the story of Nehemiah in the psalm as well. Listen, this, the, whole, the Bible's whole approach to the emotional life, it's so hard. It's so challenging. It's such a massive tension. We swing to one end of the pendulum or the other over towards bitterness uh, on, on one hand, and that bitter root grows up and defiles many or we swing to the other side and just allow our comfort, our privilege, what we've arrived at to numb us and deaden us to the way things really are. And here's why I know it's so hard to live this. I know it's hard to live this because when you go home today and when you walk out of here and somebody asks you, what did he talk about today? Some of you are going to be tempted to say, man, he told us to be grouchier. He's like the angry pastor. I don't know about that guy. Some of you will be tempted to say, ah, he just told me to get over it. But that's not actually what I've said at all, at all. What I'm trying to press you toward is what the Psalm's trying to press you toward, which is an authentic spiritual life, which maybe, just maybe, doesn't fit on a meme somewhere. And if we can live in the tension, it will produce in us an unshakable life in the end. How can we live both? How can we do both? Oh, if we're not nearly angry enough or if we're not nearly free enough, prayerful enough, it's really ultimately because of number three. It's because our God isn't big enough. Let me try to show you how big he is here. Some of you may be saying, all right, man, is he telling me to go home and pray this over my boss that I'm mad at? Pray this psalm over my enemies, how happy he'll be with the rocks. Oh, man, no, 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 I'm not. Actually, not telling you to pray this at all, because as, as one commentator I, I came across put it, it wasn't wrong for this, this person to pray this, but it would be wrong for us. Why? Here's why. Because we have a far better source of righteous anger for our hearts and a far greater resource for forgiveness than the writer of the psalm had. You see, where is that? 
at the end, in the last verse, the most graphic image we're given, he writes, happy, blessed is the one who seizes the Babylonians, your infants, and dashes them against the rocks. What's he saying? You, You have to catch this. He's saying that what would make him happy is a form of justice where someone's child was ripped from his parents' arms and put to death. He's saying, if I can see that kind of thing happened, oh, if I can see with my eyes the level of vengeance done to me, taken out on the one who did it, I'd be okay. He's saying what could give my heart peace is if I saw the evil that's done to me taken out on some other parent's child. That's shocking, and it ought to be. It's shocking because it's the last thing the writer here lets you see. Oh, but thankfully, it's not the last thing that God lets you see. Because when we get to the New Testament, many years later, and the temple and city of Jerusalem have been rebuilt, Jesus Christ comes into a world marked by shocking violence, and he writes a new and better into the psalm with his own blood. Because into that world, into our world, Jesus of Nazareth, he flew with all his divine anger, all his divine rage against the world, against all the systems that crush and the choices that break and the wounds that happen. And all those things conspired to kill him. It wasn't just the Romans. It wasn't just the Jews. It was everybody. And they took him, the father's child, and they seized him. And on the cross, they dashed him against the rocks till his own body broke. Why? Two reasons. First, for all the world's injustices. And if there's been some kind of hurt done to you, it's been done to all of us, some kind of wound deep down, oh, you know what would make you feel good in a way? It would feel good to see the kind of pain you've been feeling to be experienced by the one who did it, just so they know what it's like to be you. But the cross says, in a way, you can have that, only in a way that doesn't carve out your insides. Because what you have to see is that on the cross, you have to see not just that Jesus passively gave up his own life, but that God the Father was active in the world and active in pouring out the wrath he had against all the evil done to you in the world on his own son. On his own son. God poured out his anger against evil. He was far angrier against evil than any of us. And yet... At the same time, God was far more prayerful than any of us because Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the Son of God on the cross, what did he do? He prayed the whole time, Father, forgive them, he prayed. They don't know what they do. Father, into your hands commit, I commit my spirit. Oh, God, the Father, at the same moment, he's pouring out his anger. God, the Son, is praying his anger and forgiving and releasing. And... He wasn't just praying for all of them. God the Son was praying for you. Because Jesus didn't do, he didn't just go to the cross for those things done to you. No, he went to the cross for those things done by you, by you. He didn't just die because of systemic evil, although that's true. He died for personal evil, the evil personally done by you and me. And what the cross shows you is the painful and ugly truth That in the end, it was you and me, it was us, who picked up the Son of God, the Father's child, and dashed him against the rock, see? 
We're the ones who dashed him. We're guilty of the ultimate crime. And yet the miracle of it is that now we can be forgiven and pardoned and freed from that crime and loved and brought in and received and fathered and made a part of the ultimate family by the very one we wronged and we hurt. The miracle of the cross is that we could all be forgiven and loved by a big God who is big enough to act against evil in the world, big enough to take the evil into himself, and big enough to forgive the ones who hurt him and call them his own. And when you see that, man, it's just really hard to be bitter. It's hard. Some of you may have heard the name of uh, a lady by the name of Corrie ten Boom. Corrie ten Boom was a Dutch woman who lived in the Netherlands during World War II. And she and her sister Betsy (coughs) hid Jews in their home. They were trying to help them escape and survive. And they were eventually caught. And Corrie ten Boom and Betsy were put in a concentration camp. And in that camp, Betsy actually died because of her mistreatment. Uh, but after the war, uh, Corey Ten Boom survived, survived the camp. And after the war was done, she became a Christian writer and speaker. And she went around giving her story and telling the story of what happened to her in that camp. And one day, after a service where she told her story, this happened to her. She wrote this. She wrote this. She said, at a church service in Munich where I was speaking, I saw him the former SS man who had stood at the so-called shower room door at the processing center at Ravensbrook. With the other guards, he'd often run his hands over the naked bodies as they walked by and responded callously to requests for help. He was the first of our actual jailers that I'd ever seen after the war, and suddenly it was all there again. The heaps of clothing, Betsy's pained, blanched face, and after the church service, he came up to me and said, How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein. To think that, as you say, he has washed away my sins. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, but my hand stayed at my side. Angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me. I tried to smile. I tried to raise my hand, but I could not. I silently prayed, Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. I submit to you today, this is the kind of heart that the world needs. Was she still angry? Oh, you betcha. But what did she do with it when she could do nothing else? She prayed her anger. She prayed it. And because she did that, now, 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 she had a God big enough to move through her life and the healing power of the cross was leaked back into the world in that moment, space of time. It's the kind of heart we need. A kind of heart that stays angry at evil and injustice, but prays it, writes it, sings it. Not into judgment, but reconciliation. And only a big God can give us that.